Hi everyone, welcome back to QBD Book Club, the podcast, a show brought to you by QBD Books, your favourite book retailer. I'm your host, Victoria Carthew, and I can't wait to spend some time with you today. So without further ado, let's get into it. Today, we are taking you inside the crime. In fact, you can't dig any deeper than the bones. So for that, you need the ultimate expert. And we are talking to the legendary Kathy Rikes about her brand new book, The Bone Code. Kathy, hello, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me onto your show. It's, um, I imagine I feel really lucky to get to chat to you today because I think you're the sort of person that anyone that met you would have a million questions, be it about the books, but also about your remarkable career. Um, I get a lot of questions. Um, I've said in one of my books, I forget where, that half the people in the world want to know everything, tell me details, and the other half don't want to hear anything. <laughs> so It's very much very true, actually. You did say this book. You actually said that similar thing in this book as well. Um, I'm fascinated by the life you've led and, and the career you've had because I think, you know, we've had a couple of generations where we've been telling our girls, our young women, that you can do anything, you can be anything. But when you chose your chosen path a long time ago, you would have been really unusual, wouldn't you? I mean, that would have been not the common career for a young woman. No, it was not the typical career. The forensic sciences in general were not the typical career for young women. Anthropology wasn't quite as skewed. Um, I think one time we, we, a journalist asked me and we got down the American Board of Forensic Anthropology list and it was running about three to one men to women, which was a lot better than some of the other specialty areas. But obviously it was it was what ticked a box for you a, a long time ago. Um, how were you sort of encouraged and driven along the way? Well, the box that was ticked for me was actually bones. It was the human skeleton and osteology, but initially I was doing bioarchaeology. When I completed my PhD, my dissertation was in looking at ancient skeletons archeologically recovered skeletons. And I was doing that very happily uh, at my lab at the university when cops started asking me for help on cases. And that's how I made the transition into, um, into forensics. Isn't it wonderful though, that you had this amazing scientific brain and yet the other side of the brain, you're a fabulous, beautiful writer as well. Isn't that fantastic to have that combination? Well, it's worked out pretty well for me. Yeah, and yeah. I like having more my foot in more than one world. You know, initially it was um, just in academia and then I started doing forensics and it was the world of the crime lab, autopsy room and academia. Then I started writing novels and I had a foot in the world of, you know, commercial fiction. And then the TV show came along and I had a foot in, you know, TV production and writing. So it's, it's nice. I, I like doing more than one thing. Absolutely. I've got a friend who has a, um, a fashion label called White Label Nova, and the Nova is not only but also. And I think that's a really great word. And that sounds exactly like what you do. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> not only but also, yes. Um, uh -huh. You've seen amazing changes in technology, science, medicine, you know, over the past, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. But how much has that helped your books? Obviously, it's helped your work. But how much has that helped with your writing as well? Well, I'm always on the lookout um, for new ideas and new aspects of forensic science. So, you know, I, I read the journals. Um, I'm no longer doing a lot of casework, but I keep in close contact with colleagues. I read the journals. I attend, not this year, uh, the professional meetings. So I'm constantly looking for those cutting edge things that my readers will find interesting because you can't 
just do bones after bones after bones that would get boring. So I'm always on the lookout for blood spatter pattern analysis or mitochondrial DNA derived from cat hair, you know, or whatever, whatever it happens to be. It is almost that that level of detail that you give people is what they love, isn't it? You couldn't, I don't think you could write a book like yours without being the expert that you are. Well, you could, you just might write it badly. Um, <laughs> yes. I, you know, it's annoying when I read a book and they put anthropology in and they get it wrong and they don't need to. There are so many resources out there where you can check your facts that, um, but I do have a big advantage in having worked for a long time. I'm not going to tell you how many years in a combined medical, legal and crime lab. So I have colleagues that if I have questions about, you know, DNA analysis or, arson or you know the bomb squad I can you know just pick up the phone and or I used to be able to just walk across the hall and talk to them and you know get and actually sit down with whoever our forensic dentist and watch him go through step by step a bite mark analysis or what so you know it helps me to keep accuracy and also just describing the situations being at a crime lab or being in an autopsy room being at a, a, a recovery a body recovery site you know I've been there I've done that so I know more than just describing it from the internet I, I know what it smells like and what it feels like and what the bugs are like and yeah that's absolutely what you do. You always take us there. I, I, so many times I read a phrase of yours and I think, yeah, you, that's how you put us in that situation because you've been there. And maybe I suppose when you know your background, you know that you have been there. So that sort of helps with it. Very clever use for the last 14 books or so, very clever use of the word bone in every title. Does the title <laughs> dictate the story or does the story come first? How do you decide on those titles to include bone? Yeah, story comes first. Um for example, I'm working on the next book right now, and the working title is Book 21. So <laughs> I will be well along into, and I'll start thinking about it pretty soon, but I'll be well along into the writing of the book before um, I come up with an actual title. Sometimes my family has fun with it. We'll be sitting around, um, we get together for big family dinners, and we used to sit around and throw out ideas. And I remember when I was still trying to find an idea for which one was it, uh, Monday morning, I think, where the bones are discovered in the basement of a pizza parlor. My daughter won that year because she suggested bony pepperonis, <laughs> which clearly we didn't use, but right. we. We liked it. <laughs> I can imagine a good cover, though. I can imagine the cover would look yeah, good. Bony pepperoni, I don't know. <laughs> There's something really comforting when you pick up one of the books. Um, you know that Temperance is going to talk to you. You know Tempe's going to be with you. That really deliberate decision a long time ago when you started this character for her to, to be speaking to, to the reader. How was? Why did you decide to do that? Yeah, and I think I do more and more of that in in the later as the series progresses. Um, I made the decision. I wrote a partial manuscript in third person voice, Temperance Brennan, Forensic Anthropology, and I got I don't know a hundred page into it, and I thought, you know, this yeah, just isn't working. This is really not moving. It's boring me, so it's going to bore readers. So I stopped and started over in first person voice, and it was like I was telling my own story. And that just worked for me. So from the very beginning, I've done the books in first person voice as if Tempe is telling her story. And as I said, I think more and more, she's now actually talking to the reader and, and, you know, saying things to the reader, like, I'm sure you get it, but, and then, you know, going yeah, on. It is. It's like, she's in your ear. Honestly, that's how it feels. And it's great. 
Yeah. Well, good. It makes, you, good. it makes you feel like you're a part of it. The other interesting thing is you mentioned the TV series obviously before and it's for, you know, many people I'm sure have gone in between, but you almost feel like that actress's voice is in your ear as well because it was so sort of synonymous with this character. And I know the storylines have been different, but it is it is actually quite wonderful to have feel like you know and can see the person. Okay. Yeah. And that, there is a little bit of a difference between yes. TV Tempe and book Tempe. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, I think what Emily Deschanel did with that part was brilliant. If you binged all 246 episodes. <laughs> yeah, we're the longest running scripted drama in the history of the Fox Network still, 12 seasons. Right. If you binged all of those back to back, you would see how Emily evolved this character. And I think she just did a brilliant job of it. But you've done that through your books. I mean, the way Tembi has evolved in, and changed in your books, we've got to know her so well. Your fans, you obviously these days with social media and the Zoom, you can, you know, um, your fans can really reach out to you. They they hold her very close, don't they? Do they give you some strong opinions about her? They do. And that was one of my goals when I started writing the series is I wanted to create a character that people could um, identify with in some ways that people would find approachable because she wasn't, she was smart and she's passionate about her work and really cares about justice, both for the dead and for the people left behind. But she's also got flaws. Um, and I, I did that on purpose. Um, she's a recovering alcoholic, for example, and she does some ill-advised things, especially in the early books. She goes out and digs up bodies on her own. But I did want her to be a character that people would uh, care about and would get involved with and um, would like, would genuinely like her. We're talking about the new book, The Bone Code, which is uh, out in April, April, May, and it's just fantastic to be able to have another Tempe on the shelf. Um, I wanted to step back a tiny bit to the previous book, to Conspiracy of Bones, and I was reading some interviews with you um, when you did that book and you about what brought it together. So you obviously had some significant health issues and you talked about the um, fake news at the time, a stressful work situation, plus the bits and pieces of the case. It was quite a lot that brought that book together. Was this a was this a little bit different? Was there or is there a giant backstory to how you pulled together the bone coat? Um, how did I get the wow, you know, I I'm I've been doing all these interviews on the bone code and I'm writing book 21. So to yes. go back to a conspiracy, um, I have to, I have to Well no, you don't need to go back. I'm just interested in in um this one that there were so many things that put you into that book. For this one, where did all these ideas come from? Because it is fascinating how you've drawn a, a case from the past and a case from from current together. Yeah, the Bone Code came to me in the in the writer's room um, for Bones. We used to talk about um, stories that were ripped from the headlines, and some of our episodes clearly were. So this is a book that some of the books that I've written are based on actual cases that I worked on. Some are based on cases I've heard about through professional meetings or whatever, and some are ripped from the headlines. So this one was triggered, this idea to look at the human genome and uh, tools for editing the human genome, which are now available. Um, and I read us an article about a Chinese, and the genetics community has agreed that even though we have these tools to modify the genome of an unborn baby, we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna create designer babies. Well, I read an article about a Chinese scientist who went ahead and did just that. He altered the genomes of two baby girls before they were born. So I thought, now he did it for, you know, for good, re it really upset the genetics community, but he did it for good reasons so that they would not be susceptible to certain disease. But I thought, what if someone got hold of that technology and did that? 
had the ability to alter the genome, the human genome, but did it for dishonorable purposes. So that's, and that's how uh, us, the books always start is I begin with a case or an idea or a headline. And then I ask myself, well, what if this, and what if that, and what if that, and then you spin it off um, into fiction. And I guess it's not such an unusual idea because the, the biggest fear, I, I think one of the biggest fears is that that exactly would be done for dishonorable reasons. So it's, that's one of the reasons people don't want it to be, you know, don't really want it to happen. You chose to set this in a post-COVID, even though we're not really post-COVID yet, but a post-COVID um, time. How tricky was that to decide what you included, what you didn't include, because you are still living it as well? Well, the book was finished before the pandemic. Yeah. So I finished it before, you know, and, I, you know, I wrote about mRNA vaccine production and I wrote about a pandemic in the book and that was before we ever heard of COVID. So, <laughs> yeah, it was a little prescient in, in, in that respect. So, but I know what you're saying. I think every author has to ask themselves him or herself. And I did this with book 21 that I'm writing. What do I do? Do I acknowledge it? Do I just go on? Do I give it lip service? Do I just continue on as if, you know, forget about the pandemic and I'm not even going to mention it. So it is a conscious decision. Um, and I think maybe for the bone code, I went back in and inserted some reference to the pandemic. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's 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 almost going to be unavoidable, isn't it? Because it has been such a big part of global life for, for just so long. I also love the way you um, add to the drama and the whole feeling of the book with the weather, with the hurricane. You've obviously been through a few yourself because you describe it very well. Yeah, I own a beach house on um, a barrier island off Charleston, South Carolina. And so when the story opens, uh, Tempe's in Charlotte and she and Birdie hunker down together and they ride out the hurricane, but her friend, Anne, who's down on a barrier island outside of Charleston, South Carolina, uh, has house damage. So she asks Tempe to come down there. This is how the whole story begins. And um, as Tempe enters Charleston County, she gets a call from the coroner. Um, the hurricane has thrown ashore a medical waste container and inside are two bodies. And would Tempe please come and help her? Um, analyze these remains. And then of course you tie that to an old case which which, which Tempe's been a part of. I love the way you introduce some new characters. We've, we've known Andrew Ryan for a while. I love watching their little relationship develop but um, you introduce us to, uh, to Tonya, a new uh, police detective. I hope we're going to see more of her because she was great. Yeah I really like Tonya. Um, Tonya Veslowski who's a tough detective from Charleston, South Carolina. And I think the way she and Tempe at first, they don't really hit it off very well. And I think the the sparring between them, it was a lot of fun to write that dialogue. She, and it's, it's great to kind of have another really strong female in there as well, isn't it? And as you say, she, I mean, Tempe's had clashes in the past with other women working around her, but the way that developed was fantastic. And she was such an important character. Yeah, I really liked her. She, Yeah, hopefully she'll be back. Probably not in book 21, but hopefully soon after that. It's always a decision when I write a new book um, because I have two settings. I've had two settings from the beginning. Um, I remember, I think when the first book come out, came out, I remember reading a review saying, a commute between Charlotte, North Carolina and Montreal, Quebec. That's ridiculous. Nobody would do that. <laughs> well, I'd been doing it at that point for decades. So I always have to decide when I start to write a book, um, where am I going to set it? Am I going to set it in the Carolinas? I'm going to set it in, in, in Montreal as the original book was set, or am I going to take her someplace else? 
Um, and she's she gets around. She's been to Guatemala <laughs> in the fifth book. She's been to Israel in, um, I think, Crossbones was the eighth book. She's been to Guatemala. Uh, I said that. She's been to Afghanistan. Oh. I was honored to be part of a USO tour, five authors. We went to Afghanistan and Kyrgyzstan. And uh, we went to thank the troops for their service. And they spent their whole time thanking us for coming. So that was such a touching experience that I wrote about, you know, if I went to Afghanistan, Tempe goes to Afghanistan. So I think it was Bones of the Lost. That and you have her went. child in Afghanistan in this one as well, serving? Yes, yes. Katie is in the Army. She's done two hitches in the Army. There'll be some developments along that line in Book 21. Do, um, do people that know you and, and love you as in friends and family look for little hints like that? Like I noticed on the front, of course, Karen Slaughter gives you a, a little mention, but in the book, Karen Slaughter gets a mention as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm writing and I'm thinking, well, who should I have her be reading? And I, I, I look at my shelves and who's on my yeah. shelves? Well, Karen Slaughter's right there. So I'll put that down. I'm always fascinated when someone has such a successful series and especially such a successful character about the decision at what point do you to make a book that it could be a standalone, that you could pick it up or if you could read it without having known the back history of, of, of the character. Where do you sit on that front and how do you go about it when you're writing? That's a challenge. Um, I want every book to be appealing as a standalone. But when you've got a continuing character series, what you have to so, therefore, you have to introduce your characters in every single book and your basic premise. Who is Temperance Brennan? She's a forensic anthropologist, blah, blah, blah. She works on decomposed and mummified and burned and mutilated and skeletal remains. But that may be the first book one reader's picking up, but it may be the 20th book another reader's picking up. So you've got to do that in a new and creative way in every single book. How do I introduce? And I've ha I've done it by, oh, in one book, she's sitting in a faculty meeting. She's bored. So she begins writing her autobiography. So you get all the information. In one book, it opens up. She's on the stand testifying and she's being cross-examined by counsel. You know, what is it you do? Who are you? You know, so you got You can't just do it straight narrative. You've got to find creative ways um, to do it in each book. And I guess because she does, because Tempe speaks to you as a, a, that character, it's a great, you're able to do it, aren't you? Because it's very much her just retelling her story. It is. Yeah, it is. And, and, and when you reintroduce, um, you have to keep it brief for your returning readers, but you have to provide enough information about how you, who, who your protagonist is. You mentioned a bit earlier all of the different situations that you, you put the characters in, so whether they're the different types of labs they're in, the doctors who they're mixing with. I think it is such an eye-opener for people who aren't part of the medical world because there are so many stages and phases. And I think even for us in Australia, you know, I was reading you you're talking about um, the coroner being elected. I mean, that's just so different to anything that we do. But all the bureaucracy that sits around forensics and crime and police, it's it's such a, I love the way you describe it and give it to us because it's, it's almost a learning, isn't it? Well, hopefully, yeah. And most people, fortunately, never have to have contact with that world. And that's one of the reasons I think they're curious about, um, you know, what's a medical examiner's life? What's the difference between a medical examiner and a coroner? How does a crime lab work? What goes on with a crime scene recovery unit? It's not exactly like CSI that we see on television. Yeah. So I do try to depict it um, accurately. So do you get a little bit frustrated? You mentioned it earlier, but a bit frustrated when you see some of those shows or some of those books that are not really telling it how it is because it gives a false impression. 
<laughs> well, I, yeah, some of the things like, yeah. And we vowed not to do that on Bones. We would never have Tempe go to a crime scene in pumps and pantyhose. You know, we would <laughs> never get our, our DNA in 22 minutes or whatever. So, and, and yeah, there are many other things we wanted different and did differently on, on Bones than we saw in a classic, you know, typical police procedural. And that, that classic old kind of cliche about truth being stranger than fiction, from where you've, because you've seen it on both sides, is is truth a little more boring than fiction or, or which one is it? There can be truth that's stranger than fiction. Um, every now and then I would get a call from one of the pathologists down in the autopsy room. I'd be up in my lab and they'd say, you got to come down and see this one, you know, <laughs> and then it, it, you know, it would be something very bizarre. So sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. It's a really, um, it's a challenging for the character and for you. It's a challenging job mentally and physically, and I think you um, really give us a wonderful sense of that. Be it the smells, be it the the scenes that you find yourself. How have you over the years managed that yourself? Because it's a it's a huge job and a really important job, but really confronting. Well, you have to have a certain makeup. Um, if you don't have the psychological wherewithal to deal with those smells and sights and the thought of, of violent death, um, the lab that I work for did, own, it was a forensics lab. So it, we, we didn't do any hospital pathology. We didn't do any natural deaths. It was all violent death, suicide, homicide, accidental. You have to be able to deal with that, or it's it's just not the profession for you. You have to develop the ability to remain detached and objective. Otherwise, you can't get emotionally involved with every case, or you would be no good to that person lying on the table. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Temperance is certainly very good at doing all of those things you've just mentioned. You're writing, this is book 20 of hers, you're writing book 21. Is there a long-term plan? Is there, do you kind of see where she is in another couple of years' time? What's the plan for Temperance? Well, the plan right now is 22 books because I just signed a new two book contract. So there will definitely be book 21, which I'm busily writing, and then book 22. Beyond that, I haven't, I haven't thought about it. But you sound like you still have wonderful energy for her and what she offers to the world. Well, I still like her. I, I think she's a character that I like a lot. Um, she has a, enormous appeal globally, which I find just astounding. It's, the books are in, not every book is in every language, but I think We've sold 36 different languages. And the show is in, my showrunner told me once, was in virtually every foreign territory in the world. So apparently there's something appealing about, about this character, so. It seems only right that um, Birdie the cat makes quite a few appearances in the Bone Code and that your cat has just made a little appearance in there as well. Is that usually good company? He's, he's back, that's Skinny. Um, Skinny is with me every minute of the day. He sleeps smooshed up against me at night. So yeah, he's definitely my cat. Fantastic, just like Birdie is Temperance's cat. So yes. congratulations on the latest instalment. It is fantastic and uh, great to have Tempe back. I think a lot of people were have been waiting and waiting for this read. So thank you so much for joining us. We wish you the best of luck with this one and with book 21 as well, Kathy. Thank you so much for thank joining you. us on QBD Crime Club. Thank you so much. I can't wait to get back to Australia. I miss yeah, it. As soon as you can, come on back. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for your company today on QBD Book Club, the podcast. We'll chat again soon.